APU. American Public University is proud to present The Everyday Scholar. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Dr. Larry Parker, Program Director in the School of Business. And our conversation today is about war, conflict, and the military. Uh, welcome, Larry. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, definitely. Um, really timely, interesting, I should say always timely conversation. And I'll just jump into the first question. And so in the contemporary world, nations do not have to fight for pure survival anymore. So, and essentially they can make treaties if they like resources, food production, et cetera. And so although rare, why do nations still fight each other? And when I say that, like a formal declaration of war against each other, it rarely happens anymore, thankfully. Well, you know, and, and this is um, something that has really been an, an, an age old uh, issue throughout history. The, the main eight issues or or, or causes still remain. There's the economic, territorial, religion, nationalism, revenge, uh, civil war, revolutionary, or defensive. And so those main issues still exist. Uh, so even though we have trade, there's still a way for one of those things to be triggered in some, some way. And it's, it's really about perspective. Um, you have to get into the mindset of that other nation. And I completely agree. Um, just when you talked about revenge, it made me think of uh, World War One, when the French had lost the Alsace region during the 1870 Franco-Prussian War. And so throughout uh, the subsequent decades, the French felt like that was uh, a tragedy and they had to take back Alsace-Lorraine. And of course, nobody were able to predict that the World War One would be so horrific and I always love talking about World War One because it's one of those wars that essentially truly didn't have to occur. <laughs> and especially for the sheer tragedy as far as loss of human life. And that goes directly to the next question is, should the US, United States of America, aka America, uh, should we be the world police? So since 1945, the US has been involved in around 18 wars or conflict. And of course, that number can vary depending on what you define as a conflict. And so should we be the world police? Well, and that's a, a very interesting um, question because, you know, when we think of police, uh, you think of someone who's enforcing a set of, of rules or, or policies that, especially if you are the police or you had a part in, in creating, creating this order that you want to maintain. And what I see the U.S. has always recognized, and it's it's interesting you brought up World War One. As we had conflicts or we entered conflicts, we knew we wanted to keep it away from our shores. When we talk about just the political positioning that we had to keep things off our shores, forward project, and to shape things before they came to our shores. And so those are the things that um, come to mind when we think of why we're in certain nations, why we're in certain parts of the world, we're trying to influence those things before they come to us. And then we get into what we now call the national security strategy, which is years from you know when we were first talking about projecting power in, the, um, in World War One and World War II. But now we're talking about the national security strategy. And, and this is something I think we, we had a 
brief conversation about this, and we talked about the four pillars of the national security strategy. And, you know, presidents get an opportunity to shape the national security strategy once they step in. And President Trump did so in 2017. And the four pillars of his national security strategy were protect the homeland, promote American prosperity, preserve peace through strength, and advance American influence. So at that point, I'll, I'll leave it there, you know, to open it for discussion that when we think of those things, those need us to facilitate some actions and to serve as a police in order to ensure those things are happening to ensure our national security. When you talked about the four pillars, they're excellent. I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody disagreeing with that, but everybody disagrees with everything. <laughs> but ensuring, you know, the safety of the homeland, number one. And just like you said, the U.S. is, I guess, more unique amongst world countries in the sense that we have a very friendly country to the north. You know, the last time we fought Canada was the French-Canadian War, maybe. <laughs> or the French-Canadian War, sorry, uh, like the 17-somethings. Such a long time ago, it's inconsequential. And then, of course, the last time we fought Mexico was the Mexican-American War of like the 1840s, I believe. And then since then, we've had friendly neighbors. Now, most countries in the world can do not have that opportunity or that, that blessing in which they have potential hostile people around them. Anyways, and when I say hostile... That philosophically, that's very complex in the sense that they've had neighbors that they've had conflicts with, historic conflicts, present conflicts, so many things. And so ensuring the, the safety of the homeland is number one for every country. It's not unique to the U.S. And so I believe, and please correct me if, if I'm wrong, Trump, one of his successes is the fact that he didn't get us involved in a fresh conflict during his four years, which many presidents most presidents can't say they've done that, at least in the last few decades. Is, is that correct? Or please correct me if I'm wrong. Well, you know, and, and that's interesting you, you um, bring that to mind because you're correct. As I, as I look at it, everything that was done under this administration was managing something that was already in existence. And if I could just touch back on something that w you just uh, mentioned. And um, when we talk about protect the homeland, where we get into trouble and where a lot of the political conversation comes is trying to define that. What does that what does that mean? Uh, protect the homeland. And the whole reason that, you know, we often end in some kind of conflict or have such um, partisan discussion is because protect the homeland can be seen in so many different ways. And, and it doesn't always involve armed conflict. And so you know, again, getting us back to the whole genesis of this conversation, how far do we go before we start to have war? War, as you had said, is is the last thing you want, of course. One of the universalities of war is that once it starts, it is a completely different beast of what anybody thinks what will happen. There's always great strategies on both sides or multiple sides. <laughs> war is not always one right versus left, and I'm not talking politics, but like this side versus this side. War quickly spirals out of control. <clears throat> and so no matter how how wonderfully you've planned things, things always go wrong. And it makes me think of like, obviously for, for the war on terrorism and when we fought Al-Qaeda, which was in Afghanistan. And of course, if you look at the history of Afghanistan, it's truly tragic 
going back to the Soviet invasion in the early 1980s, in which the U.S. supported the the Afghan rebels to when the, the dissolution of the USSR occurred in the late 80s, in which then Afghanistan basically became a failed state, which allowed al-Qaeda and then uh, the Taliban to take over. And then years later, that then went into the attack on our actual homeland, the first attack, you know, with 9-11 that occurred in I mean, since I think, you know, random German and Japanese subs might have shelled the U.S. in World War II um, that occurred. And just all these unexpected things that occurred historically that created present conflicts, which are just absolutely, it's impossible to have that foresight. Yeah, I really think about this one because it's personal. Um, and I say personal just from the perspective, um, I'm a, um, a son of an a army uh, soldier and I grew up paying attention to these type of things. And I myself watched, read about Afghanistan and, and just really learned um, throughout high school and then through you know college. I just retired after serving 24 years in the Marine Corps. And that one was actually um, a war that I participated in. I served and I had a tour in Afghanistan. And it's interesting, as you say, the history to know now that I'm I'm standing on that ground for something that had started so many years ago. And as senior military officers, we often study war. We study history to understand your adversary. And in order to truly understand them, you, you try to understand, you know, why are we at conflict? Why are we having these issues? And it's, it's not easy to, to define. You know, as we said, some of these things are Paradigms are old issues that either just get worse with time or just they're so historic. Some of the individuals that are involved in it don't know why um, they're, they're truly fighting it. No, it's true. And especially Afghanistan, there's such a tribal element that I think as Americans, we've, of course, we've lost tribal structure in this country a long, 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 long time ago. Although, you know, there, of course, is talk about tribal politics today. That's nothing like an actual tribal structure as found in Afghanistan or Pakistan, where your loyalty goes to your people, your tribe, whatever that is. And so it'd be extraordinarily difficult to navigate a country like Afghanistan and to build coalitions in which there's a separate political process going on in the ground. <laughs> yes. And, you know, if you think about it, that's why often said in, in the military that we don't build nations because... There's such a difference in culture to try to, and we, we could probably spend a, a, a totally different podcast on failed attempts to supplant our culture on someone in the East, just because it's, it's so different. And unless you can truly get in the mindset of the people in that particular region, you're bound for some um, form of failure. And if we could circle back just to one of your original questions was about, you know, politicians, politicians and their approach. And, you know, being a person in the military, we actually pride ourselves in being able to study how to get closer and understand those individuals that are on the ground that you're dealing with and understand their culture. And so we actually study the dime principle, the diplomatic information, military and economic approach to, to things so you're not always utilizing your weapon. I can't say 
everyone from a political standpoint takes that approach. And so you have this where the individuals that are the, as Klaus would, would say, war is being a tool of, of foreign policy, you know, one of the last tools, you can't say everyone in the chain of command follows that same philosophy. No, and that's great. And especially uh, mentioning Clausewitz, which, you know, was writing about the after effects of the Napoleonic Wars. And if you want to look at uh, a series of conflicts that just ripped Europe up, and we're not even getting into the 20th century with World War I and World War II, we're talking about the Napoleonic Wars. And I, I don't think people realize that the Napoleonic Wars started with, you know, the French Revolution, in which there was those wars, and then there was the Napoleonic Wars, and then by 1815, everybody was done. You know, at that point, they, they, they had their feel of, you know, that, that kind of conflict. Exactly. And, that, and, and this perfectly segues into our next question. Politicians do not always start wars, but they often escalate them. So should all politicians have military service before they can serve, and I'm putting big quotes, serve the American public? You know, I, I really think about this, and I, I, after serving my um, adult life in the military, I, I'd be a big champion and say, yeah, everyone should serve. But, you know, really thinking about it um, further, you don't have to serve in it to be a proponent for it or an advocate for the military or an advocate for the appropriate use of the military. And I had to think about it. You know, you and I are, are, are PhDs. But yet we can be an advocate for an MD. You know, I'm, I'm an advocate for health, um, but I don't perform any surgery or, or write any prescriptions. And and so I, I really you know, wanted to go outside the box and think about that. But those individuals and this is not to make it too academic, but, you know, you and I, when we talk about emotional intelligence and all the other things of just being intelligent diversity and in, in the difference uh, in, in individuals, if the politician is willing to step outside of themselves and look at um, all the dynamics of the situation, there shouldn't be a problem. One of the current issues that are being discussed is like the new secretary of defense, or at least the person that's being nominated for the secretary of defense. And the real issue is not his, his qualifications, because the man is a four-star general and served. But here's the difference, and it's just interesting to see. It's a matter of three to four months difference and when he would not need a waiver to be appointed. And he would be classified as a civilian that would be sitting over the Department of, of Defense. And so it's just interesting that we're, we're, we're down to the point of splitting hairs of three to four months of a person who served almost 40 years. Before this podcast, I was looking at the, the stats of the current Congress. So the current Congress has a 2020, not the new one that's going to come in. And I think it said about, about 20% of Congress people were in the military, which is a pretty small minority. And that's why I asked, should politicians have experience with the military? And it doesn't mean that they had to serve like you did, you know, for many, many years of, of, of wonderful service. But individuals need to have a really good philosophic and practical approach to conflict, the psychology of conflict and the philosophy of conflict before they become politicians and they start espousing potential harmful rhetoric that could influence people to take up arms. And the reason I say that is because in the US, uh, we haven't had an internal conflict since the Civil War and the Civil War tore this country up. 
I know people understand how horrible it was, but then even looking and, and reading some of the news where people casually talk about, you know, an upcoming civil war, a civil conflict, and it's like, but who's going to fight each other? I, I really don't think anybody wants to fight each other over taxation policies. No. And I, I agree with you. If we think about the individuals who fought the war and some of those that were actually roommates, um, they, they knew each other. The, the generals were uh, the ones who employed the strategy, knowing that they were being required to do something by the politicians of that time. You hear the old adage, brothers against brothers and family, you had to draw lines. And so, you know, without getting into the overall reasons and purpose and all that of, of why that war happened, it is one of those things when we look at today, we can have a major disagreement. I can't see it being to that degree. Exactly. America in the 1850s leading up to the Civil War, of course, was different. <laughs> Besides the fact that black people in the South were slaves. So you had millions of people who were in chattel slavery. And so and that created a huge political complication, for lack of a better word, where the South did not want to free its slaves because that was the, that was the bedrock of its, of its economy. The North had slavery, but was in very limited quantities. But it's not like the North was like this angel on the hill. Exactly. And, and which really takes us back to one of those, those major causes. Um, and you can slice several of those and, and one being economic. As much as individuals don't want to maybe discuss that, there is a reality and, you know, your livelihood being questioned will cause, you know, some of these actions to, to, to come into play, which, again, taking us back to today, it's a major disagreement on who should be in power, but I can't see any of those areas being touched. Exactly. Even what I would describe as the more um, uh, disagreeable rhetoric that has been going around is... I would describe as very uh, focused and very targeted towards specific populations that want to hear that. So example, if you are have already been against, or if you already think that the government <laughs> conspires against people, you are going to listen to politicians that then say that. And because of social media and uh, the many, many wonderful, but also the many terrible things that social media can do is that it can focus you into essentially a silo in which that's all you hear. And there's nothing about that that's a positive. You know, and going back to talking about, and, and, and I don't always do this, but I'm giving Trump some praises here for not getting us into conflicts. But, you know, one of the conflicts that we got into within the last decade was Libya. And thinking back to the Arab Spring, which was largely generated by social media, amazing. But the conflicts that arose from the Arab Spring have been pretty horrific. The dissolution of Libya as a country, and it's still a mess, and the ongoing Syrian civil war, in which Syria was a highly educated country that has just been ripped apart. And, you know, the US got into the Libya conflict, but then has not been able to, even with cooperations from other countries, to help resolve it. Just because like what you talked about in Afghanistan, we weren't on the ground. We didn't really understand the culture, nor, and this is hard for, I think, a, a lot of, um, I'm going to put, again, big quotes, Westerners to hear. They don't want our help. And that's hard for many individuals in the West to understand. Understand is one thing, but then also accept. That's That's the next big piece. Because if you think about it, I mentioned those causes, but then 
what if out of those eight causes, not everyone has one of those issues? You know, uh, we being involved, a little more economic and some humanitarian. We often talk about ethics, but you stand by and watch something bad happen, but you also know there's a there's an economic, um, you know, going back to your national security strategy, one of your pillars is also being affected. When the individuals on the ground find it to be either a religion or a just a historical issue with the other faction or the other tribe, which has none of those things, you know, they, you know, in some cases they, they could care less about any of those things. This has been a lifelong adversary and they're going to stay a lifelong adversary unless something amazing happens. But, you know, that's often the case and we can't understand it. Yeah. And that's why the conflict with something like Al-Qaeda or ISIS is largely, it's very difficult to rectify those conflicts because it's based in what I would describe as more, as more of religious fundamentalism. And every religion has a fundamental component to it. <laughs> and uh, especially when it comes to ISIS, you know, it's an authoritarian fundamentalist Islamic sect. And so it's very, very difficult to, quote, negotiate with um, people like that if they feel that God is on their side. And again, going to the Syrian civil war. So here in the West, we view um, this the, the political Syrian government as, quote, the enemy and the Russian support you know, the Syrian government. And so we've been supporting the rebels, but within Syria, the current government is the minority, which has held power over the majority. So you, much like Iraq, um, for decades, the minority held power over the majority. So there's this, this long, um, you know, overdue hatred and anger that's festering in these countries that again, we don't have that Largely, when people come and immigrate to the US, they kind of want to get away from that. <laughs> I'm simplifying it, of course, but you know that happens. And so with something like Syria, where people have been like, well, we should just get in there and help them. Well, it's really complicated besides the fact that Turkey, who is one of our allies, is right on the border. And when you have situations like that, and you, you really touched on that, that uh, emotions often don't involve a great degree of logic or reason um, at a certain point that they're, they're just opposed at, at, at certain points. Um, we can talk about passion for a particular uh, set of um, criteria or place in, in those um, regions. And from the West, it will make perfect sense for us to do X. But you try to explain that to either of the sides and they feel that the other side is not either being held to the same standard or somehow have not atoned for some wrong in the past, uh, their culture may view those wrongs totally different than what we've we've had here in, in the West for so long. You know, we, well, okay, forgive. Um, can we go to some kind of mitigating um, position? And that may not be a reality in, in many of the uh, societies. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Larry Parker, and we'll be right back after a short break. The cybersecurity field needs versatile professionals to keep up with new and constant cyber threats. At American Public University, you'll acquire vital certifications, foundational knowledge, and the cutting edge skills to protect and defend your organization from harm. 
Start making a difference in the world of cybersecurity today. Apply now at study at apu.com. And we're right back with Dr. Larry Parker. When you add religion as a component of a conflict, it complicates everything. <laughs> Greatly complicates. But from a political perspective, it also allows the political leaders to have a lot more power over their followers, which is the reality. It's not to say that any aspect of religion and war is good or bad. It's more of if you use rhetoric that play upon r religious fervence, <laughs> your followers, your soldiers can have a different uh, reason for fighting and have a higher reason for fighting. You know, which, I mean, if you want to go back, it makes the Crusades, from the Western perspective, Crusades, pretty, again, horrible, because essentially Europeans were like, well, let's take the conflict away from our own countries. That truly uh, gives individuals the why uh, they're doing something to fill in the gaps. When you as a leader can't justify certain actions um, beyond a certain point, if it's also tied to some value system that they can fill in those gaps and when things get hard or, you know, again, you know, touching back on these things that really overarching why we go to war, or what's the ethical um, basis for getting into an armed conflict and possibly taking someone's life. There has to be some kind of just feeling to be able to walk out of that. And, you know, we can get into the rules of engagement and to Geneva Convention, which, you know, as you mentioned before, which was very interesting because I was wondering if you were possibly going to go there where war can be so messy and get out of control. But yet we try to make sense out of it and put these rules over it, the rules of engagement and the Geneva Convention where you can have war, but it needs to be this way. And because... Everyone recognizes it can go too far to where it's total war, which going back to the philosophers of Clausewitz, no one wants that because that means everything's free game. Right. And I think perfectly leads us into our last question. Um, when war or conflict does occur, how important are ethics and morality for individual soldiers and politicians? And before you answer, I'm going to throw in the example of the war on the Eastern Front during World War II where I think total war occurred, both sides viewed each other as the other, the Germans, Nazis, if you want to say, and the Soviets, where it was such a conflict for, as both of them, I think, viewed it as utter survival, that no form of brutality was too much. Well, that's a, a, a perfect example and, and, and exactly where I want to go with my answer. That's the very worst of humanity when you go to that point. And so ethics, ethical approaches to strategy, to just the overall um, view and planning of an operation is absolutely critical, both from the political standpoint and the military individuals on the ground. Because what we have to consider, there's we're, we're not... A, considering any kind of genocide or, or total annihilation of some side, the other side, there's going to be a tomorrow. There's going to be a day after. And how are we going to live with ourselves or live with others afterwards? So there's a conflict. There's for any of those reasons that we pointed out, 
you know, religious, economic, any of those, once we get past that, how do we live with ourselves at that point to be able to come together and be in peace? Because if you go down that road, then you you see those endless or what we have termed endless conflicts because one side has done something so egregious that it's just hard for the people to accept. Again, it makes me think of the World War II uh, Eastern Front and uh, the brutality that both sides uh, did to each other. And of course, talking about uh, the Nazis and the Holocaust and you know the very formal uh, extermination of the Jews and the Poles. You know, one of the things that is 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 odd about remembering World War II. Of course, we always remember the Holocaust from the Jewish perspective. But about four four point five million Poles died during that time, in which both the Germans and the Russians <laughs> invaded Poland. You know, and just really tough, tough country to be in. Just to interject the the point that what does that say for the mentality? You know, today we kind of talk about PTSD and post-traumatic stress disorder. And and before that was even a term to, to pursue, what does that say for the effect on the people that have to carry out those type things? that they see that and for a generation, because those are the conflicts that went on for a while. You know, we we have conflicts now that, you know, a year, a couple of years, and, and, and we have, you know, obviously some that went on longer, but they would have such that total war on the Eastern Front. What does that do to their humanity at that point? And then they have to come back afterwards. No, it's true. And it makes me think of and I love talking about, sounds terrible to say, but Nazis, because today we love having Nazis in movies because they're the go-to evil. It's evil. You can kill a Nazi. It's fine. They're evil. But when you look at German history and, and you read and you watch the documentaries, those were average people brought up in a corrupt system that were essentially brainwashed. We are, they said, the best and we have to go because we're in threat. Everything was a threat. And that's where the rhetoric of danger and the rhetoric of the other was just fermented so much in Germany that it allowed an average person to essentially do terrible things. And that's why there needs to be a conversation about how evil, quote, doesn't exist, but people can do horrible things because somehow they've been uh, convinced that it's for their survival. And at the same time on the Soviet side, um, because of the great purges that occurred in the 30s and with the NKVD, they were used to essentially a lockdown state and government mass murder. <laughs> so by the time you get to World War II, and of course Stalin being a pretty bad military leader, millions of people died for no reason because of just bad, bad leadership. But they became numb to it. And this, this becomes, our point uh, when you talk about attaching it to a higher calling, something that allows them to mentally block and have some kind of cognitive dissonance from what they're actually doing and be able to live with themselves afterwards. So like we said, there's, there's a tomorrow. The individual that's carrying that out may tell themselves, I'm doing this for my family. I'm protecting those because as we said, us against them. 
and I'm doing this and I will be able to sleep tonight because I'm doing the, the dirty work that the others can't. And so that, that really brings us to if there has to be uh, armed conflict, if there has to be war, and that's the last resort, for whatever reason we entered into it, there has to be some kind of ethical approach to manage the after. And I completely agree. And I would say very few conflicts need to occur. Every conflict can be avoided with a conversation, but many conflicts can't be avoided because people refuse to have a conversation. And I think there was a treaty that was passed, I believe in uh, 1929, which outlawed all war. <laughs> it's one of those great um, oddities of history in which you know most countries in the world signed it and they said, yeah, no war, of course. And then World War II happened just a few years later. But it's one of those things that is, I think people understand human nature is for conflict. And the one thing that I would really focus on uh, with this wonderful conversation, so thank you, thank you so much for, um, for talking about war conflict in the military, our, our ethics. And, you know, related to what we were talking about um, with our last question is, you know, my dad was a career military man and he always talked about ethics. He always talked about the reasons, the why. And for the, for the average soldier, the individual soldier, they really talk about why and what this potential sacrifice is for. And my questioning when it comes to the military typically isn't about the military, but it's the politicians. What are their intentions and what is their understanding? Because the rhetoric of conflict and the, and the possible rhetoric of like <laughs> winning is very alluring to people. As I study and, and look at politics, it concerns me that um, someone, you know, and it, of course they turn to academia to do the studies or someone to do the studies of the wartime politician. The ratings are typically higher if we want to get into a ratings um, debate or discussion. The individual that's able to rally individuals during a time of conflict and appear strong is very compelling for someone who's looking for re-election or they're having something about them being questioned. They're looking for that group dynamic where people rally behind the person who's protecting them or, or that's fighting for their cause. Unfortunately, then that leads to what we've discussed here. Someone entering into something or even posturing when they don't have to because you're also um, looking at term limits and things of that nature that, I mean, all these things overlap that cause issues where, hey, there wasn't a problem before, but yet you want to appear strong and disrupt something. Exactly. And, you know, one of the great, the great strengths of democracy is uh, terms. We hold it to be self-evident today that uh, politicians have limited term limits, but in the past with previous peoples, um, the idea of a king or even a queen was self-evident to them. Of course, there's a, the person who's going to be uh, this, this shining beacon on the hill who's going to guide us for their entire lifetime. And today, that just seems utterly absurd. Um, so, uh, Larry, any final thoughts on <laughs> a very complicated, and we could literally talk about for hours, uh, topic about war conflict in the military? I really appreciate the, the approach to this because it, it shows the complicated situation, the re responsibility of the politicians to consider their impact 
you know, because of some of our guidance that we have, Goldwater Nichols and some of the others, that there's a civilian that's going to lead the military. That's already been decided. So you're going to have that combination. There's not a military that just operates on its own uh, or a military person. There's a civilian and a military component. And so I really like where our discussion went that if it has to happen, I like that, you know, we really brought back home the fact that there needs to be an ethical approach to this because there's going to be a tomorrow. There's going to be something afterwards and we want to be in a better position if we had to do this. You know, those, those are just my points. And I really appreciate the opportunity uh, since taking off the uniform. I haven't had the opportunity to get to discuss it much, but I really appreciate it. Thanks. No, of course. And, you know, I, I always wish that in the public discourse, people would talk about war in a more frank and realistic way. And I think there is always a conversation about the horrors of war, of course. Um, World War II is always brought up, um, rightfully so. But at the same time, the small conflicts need to be addressed in which people sacrifice their lives for a small conflict. And nobody should ever sacrifice their life unless it's for something important. And so that's why the rhetoric of conflict and war needs to be toned down. And our political leaders need to have extremely good historical knowledge and good ethical knowledge. And of course, that's asking too much because political leaders can come from anywhere. <laughs> exactly. No background whatsoever, but yet wield a, an incredible amount of power. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Larry. And again, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and we're talking today with Dr. Larry Parker, Program Director in School of Business about war, conflict, and the military. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.